Now listen closely. They will attack your eyes till nothing remains but two bloody sockets. Ladies and gentlemen, my subject is disturbed tonight. Her world is disturbed. Now I saw those bodies and whoever mutilated them has a very special problem. There's nothing to be afraid of. Stay Scary Podcast. Hello, and welcome to another isolated episode of Stay Scary Podcast. My name is Lisa McColgan, and my co-host, as always, is Yin Kiefer. Because we can't get into the studio, we've each recorded content for this episode, so the format will be pretty different from what you usually hear from us. Yin is going to be reading a piece of transgressive fiction from Matthew V. Brockmeyer, author of Under Rotting Sky Stories. And uh, that's described as enter a disturbing dreamscape where your worst fears are illuminated. Well, that sounds like my kind of party. And uh, then I'll do a quick dip into the sad and fucking gross tale of Mary Mallon, otherwise known as Typhoid Mary, a cautionary tale of asymptomatic carriers and the ongoing importance of washing your fucking hands. As always, if you like what you hear, please subscribe to us wherever you're listening. And hey, tell a friend or two. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Mine by Matthew B. Brockmeyer. Max slipped his wolf hat over his head, growled, and picked up the knife, admiring the way the morning light streaming through his cracked bedroom window shimmered along the edge. It was a big knife. A survival knife. Serrated on one side, razor sharp on the other, with a compass on the end that screwed off so that you could stow matches and a bit of rope in the hollow handle. He rubbed his thumb over the clear oval of plastic covering the compass, watched as the dial tilted and swung. It was the only thing Max had left that had once belonged to his father. He'd had an air rifle, but his brother had sawed it into pieces and scattered them into dumpsters around town after what he'd done to Mary Ellen. When he closed his eyes, he could still feel his father's stubble against his face when he playfully pulled him up into his arms and kissed him and could smell his breath, whiskey sweet and tangy from menthol cigarettes, sense of when he was just a child and not a pup, not a wild thing. Max wasn't quite ten when his father died, a little over a year ago. After his death, Max decided he was no longer a little boy, but a wolf pup. That's when he'd stopped talking and started wearing the hat. The hat was a mangy thing he had stolen from a thrift store. Part of an old wolf costume, just a cap of ratty matted fur with large triangular ears poking from the top and a long tail that ran down the back, falling past his waist. He slipped the knife into the sheath on his belt and skipped past the mattresses around the piles of dirty laundry strewn about and out the door. His brother, Eight Ball, was in the kitchen spooning Fruit Loops into his mouth. Max noticed he was sporting his favorite Megadeth t-shirt, the one he'd gotten at the concert, which meant it was a special day. He smiled up at Max through a curtain of lank, greasy hair hanging past his shoulders, his face a constellation of zits Max often tried to decipher, searching for patterns and meanings in the star-like blisters. Morning, Wolfie, Eightball said. Max barked twice loudly. (coughs) Keep it down, you're going to wake up Mama. Here, put something in your belly so you can take your meds. His brother poured more cereal into his bowl and pushed it across the table, leaving a trail of milk on the green formica. Max sat, sunk his head in the bowl, and began slurping it up. Come on, wolf boy, use a spoon, man. 
Max lifted his chin, which streamed fluorescent orange milk, and growled as Eight Ball went to the cluttered counter and snapped a prescription bottle, shaking it so the pills rattled. Okay, riddling time, he said, screwing off the top and dumping a few into his greasy palm. Two for you and one for me. He slid two across the table to Max and then began to crush his with a cigarette lighter, rolling it back and forth, pressing down with his palm and grinding the pill into a chunky pile. Max snuck the two pills under his tongue, hiding them till he was sure his brother wasn't looking, then plucked them out, palming them into his pocket. Rolling up a dollar bill, Eight Ball spoke softly. Big day, big, big day. Huge memorial on the plaza. We're going to make a fortune. Then leaned down and snorted the crushed pill. Oh yeah, big day. Max cocked his head back and let out a long, bang howl, which was then followed by an angry cry from the back room. God damn it, boys, I'm trying to sleep. You'd wake the fucking day with that howling. Eight Ball lifted his eyebrows and shook his head. Now you've done it. I told you to keep it down. There was a moan, then a thud. Then their mother exploded into the kitchen like a force of nature. A huge woman in a lilac nightgown, dotted with tiny pink roses, each thunderous step an earthquake. Hair, a cyclone. The flesh hanging off her arms, quivering mudslides. She gave them an angry look, eyes like raisins in a massive cookie dough. Headed to the refrigerator and swung open the door, peered inside, then slammed it shut, growling, I'm hungry and there's ain't a goddamn thing here to eat. Eight Ball shook a Marlboro from a wrinkled pack, slipped it into the corner of his mouth, and winked at Max. Don't worry, Mama. We'll get groceries. Gonna make a killing today. There's a huge memorial on the plaza. Who died this time? Eight Ball lit his cigarette, sat back, and blew out a cloud of smoke. Kurt Cobain. Who in the hell's that? Rockstar blew his brains out. Huh. Mama sat down, grabbed a handful of Fruit Loops, and gnawed on it. Make sure to get some mac and cheese. And the good stuff. Craft. Not that cheap shit. You got it, Mama. Only the best for you. Max and Eight Ball stood at the top of H Street, staring down the hill at the crowd, streaming into the plaza. Eight Ball shoved a garbage bag into Max's gut. Okay, Squirt. You take H Street. I'll take G. Meet you at the plaza. Max barked and began to pant. His tongue hanging out, his head lowered in a submissive position, one wolf ear flapping forward, the other standing stiff. He hopped twice and took off to the nearest trash can, his wolf tail rippling behind him. Rifling through the mess, pizza crusts, fast food wrappers, old newspapers, he found a Pepsi can and an empty bottle of Colt 45 and stuffed them happily into his bag, trotting to the next bin. The sidewalks were packed. College kids and punks, hippies and tweakers, all intermingled with window-shopping suburban mothers. Then he saw her, across the street, walking out of a garden shop with her mother, Mary Ellen. The little girl that filled his thoughts and dreams the same way the scent of plum blossoms from the orchard behind his trailer filled his head on warm spring nights. She was so perfect like a doll or a song. Max crouched and scurried along the edge of the sidewalk, racing ahead so he could get a better view. The crowd parted, and there they were. There was a plastic pink flamingo stuck behind her arm, and she wore a frilly baby blue dress. She looked up at her mother and smiled, and Max could see the white gauze square taped over her left eye. 
Seeing that bandage sent a shiver of heat and emotion through him as the memory of that warm autumn afternoon he shot her eye out rippled through him. He'd been hunting her for weeks. She lived in one of the fancy big houses up the hill on Diamond Street, and he'd staked it out from the entrance to the Redwood Park on the opposite side of the street. The house had looked magnificent, like a castle, towering in white, surrounded by gleaming grass with a caged garden off to the side. While lying in the ferns on the edge of the park, the tall trees behind him casting the land in dark shadows, he'd watched her play on her front lawn tinker about in the little vegetable garden, ride her bike down the sidewalk, the suburban home looming behind her like a protective force. Sometimes her mommy and daddy came out to watch her, but most times she was alone. He'd followed her movements with the barrel of the father's old air gun, lining her face up in the sights, waiting for the perfect moment to take a shot. And then that moment came. He took a breath held it, steadying himself, and slowly squeezed the trigger like his father had taught him when they'd practiced on old tin cans. And what a shot it had been. Bam! Goddamn how that howling cry of pain had echoed out as she clutched her face, screaming. Max had quickly slinked away, ducking to the ground and scurrying into the forest of ancient trees, tromping through the ferns and shadows to the maze of paths that led him far back, far side of town, down by the highway where the houses were nothing but shacks and trailers. They'd never caught him. No one knew it was him except for his brother, who'd taken the gun from Max and threatened to give him a good beating. Told him how fucked up in the head he was, how lucky he was not to get caught. Max had watched helplessly, whimpering and howling, as Eight Ball ran the hacksaw across the barrel. Max shuddered as he dragged his bag to the corner. He hunched down, stepped off the curb, and hid behind a large pickup truck. He peered at the mother and daughter from around the rear bumper. Licking his lips, he lifted his nose to the air, searching for their scent. They crossed an alley entrance and stepped through a beam of sunlight that fell from between two buildings. The light cascaded against her hair and played against her curls, illuminating her doll-like features, and Max's hand slipped to the handle of his knife. The handle of his knife, which stood erect at his side. He was stroking it absently when he was suddenly yanked from behind by the collar, jerked off his feet, and slammed into the back of a truck. Eight Ball's face, inches from his, wrinkled in anger as he pressed him against the back of the truck, his foul cigarette breath hot in the face. Dude, what the fuck? Are you stalking them? You've got to stop. Max pouted and whimpered. Don't make me take that damn knife away. Max grasped the handle with both hands, curling himself around it, lifting a lip to expose his teeth and letting out a low growl. Eight Ball batted Max across the back of the head with his palm, knocking his wolf hat sideways. Quit your shit, wolf boy, and go get us some fucking recyclables. Ruff, ruff, Max said and scampered to the street, wolf hat dangling to the side. The plaza was a madhouse, the entire square of green lawn jam packed with mourners for their fallen god. Clusters of girls in ratty black outfits moaning and weeping, clutching photographs and other weird artifacts. Solemn-faced guys with flannel shirts tied around their waists, constructing altars of candles, poetry scraps, records, and CDs. Eight Ball was right. It was a gold mine. There were soda cans and beer bottles 
everywhere. It was like a carnival, and Max skipped happily through the throngs of people yipping and howling, filling his bag. A shirtless guy with long blonde hair, a red bandana tied around his head, strumming guitar and singing, winked at Max as he passed. A tall black man with long dreadlocks gave Max the thumbs up and said around the joint in his mouth, "'Good on you, little man.'" Then there was old man Packy, cursing and shoving his shopping cart through the crowd, a lanky scarecrow in tattered blue coveralls. His long, scraggly gray beard caught the wind like a filthy sail as he swung his head, shouting and spitting, telling all the moors to get the fuck out of his goddamn way. At the sight of him, Max's heart thumped hot, happy blood into his ears and face. He leapt forward and ran to him, barking joyously. If it ain't little Max, Packy said. Ruff, 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 ruff. What's that, boy? You got something for me? Max nodded and panted. Well, come on over here. Let's have us a sit down. Packy jammed his cart under a palm tree and they squatted on the curb. Behind them, come as you are from Nirvana, blared from a boombox. The old man motioned at the crowd with a thin, dirt-encrusted hand, his nails thick and yellow. Will you look at all these goddamn stupid cocksuckers? Max whimpered, nodded. All upset about some motherfucker too dumb to keep his brains in his head. You know how much pussy that motherfucker was probably getting? Tiny globules of listening spit collected like dew against his mustache and beard as he talked. Shit, I'd be eating pussy all day and night if I were him. So much goddamn pussy, I'd need a fork and knife to get it all down. Know what I'm saying? Max didn't really know what he was saying. Uh, not exactly, but the words evoked a hazy, warm feeling that made him think of Mary Ellen. The way her hair formed perfect brown ringlets and fell about her pale neck. His eyes grew wet and lost focus, his gaze falling past the buildings and shimmering palm fronds onto the distant clouds hanging above the horizon, the sound of Kurt Cobain swearing he didn't have a gun ringing in his ears. Hey, Max, boy, now what you got? Max snapped from his daze and yanked the two Ritalin pills from his pocket, held them out in his palm. Packy's gnarled fingers quickly gobbled them up, slipped them in the front pocket of his coveralls. Good boy, he said, palming Max a crumbled $5 bill. Max panted and the old man smiled. So I suppose you want me to tell you about your daddy, don't you? Max yipped and bobbed his head. He was the best of us, boy. King of the wolf pack. Died in church with the Lord in his hand, surrounded by friends and family. Max loved this story. He knew his father had really died of something that sounded like school roses in the liver. That he'd slipped off a bar stool at the alibi and hit the ground dead, still clutching a glass of Lord Calvert. But he loved the way Packy told the story. We can only hope we go out like him, a prince among men. Packy ran his grizzled fingers contemplatively through his beard, scratched his chin. All right, enough of that. Get going, boy. I'll see you later. Max hopped up, the fiver gripped tight in his hand, and slung his cans and bottles across his shoulder, tearing off through the crowd. Max lapped at the drool dripping from the corner of his mouth. The colors were like something in a dream, transient in their beauty, ethereal and unreal, vibrant hues of pink, violet, and green. The bone-thin girl across the counter watched him warily, one hand gripping an ice cream scooper, the other on her cocked hip. Well, what flavor you want? Max pointed to a bucket of pink ice cream dotted with bits of fruits and nuts. Tutti Fruity, she asked. 
He yipped twice. On a sugar cone? He nodded, sucking in air through his nose and releasing it through his open mouth in quick gulps. Her hard face cracked into a grin. You got it, kid. Max clapped his hands. Hey, where'd you get the money for that? Eight Ball asked when Max stepped out of the ice cream parlor, lapping at his cone, black bag trailing behind like leaking ink, his face smeared in sticky swirls of pink. Max growled and said in a hoarse whisper, Mine. All right, finally got a real word out of you. Shit, that's a good sign. His brother patted the fluffy wolf hat. About time you started using words again, bud. Proud of you. Max smiled and ran his tongue across the cool, creamy sweetness that was his. All his. Eight Ball stood at the stove, flipping the sizzling steaks while Max sat at the table, playing with his knife. Mama appeared from out of her bedroom, rubbing her eyes and yawning. Is that me I smell? Eight Ball ran a hand through his oily hair, laughed. Sure as shit, Mama, and Kraft Mac and Cheese, just like you asked for. Her eyes softened and her chin quivered. Oh, you boys, I don't know what I'd do without you. She sniffled and made a weeping sound, hit her face with one plump hand, clutched at her heart with the other. Mama, come on, Eight Ball said. Stop. He sidled up beside her, rubbed her back as her head dropped onto his shoulder. Go on, sit down, and I'll serve us up some dinner. She nodded and wheezed, going to the freezer for a bottle of Gilby's gin before easing on to a seat, smiling at Max as she filled a tumbler and sipped. Eightball sat at the steaming pad of ma- pot of mac and cheese on the table, followed by three plates, each with a brown strip of meat resting in a puddle of blood. Dig in. They fell upon their food, Mama and Eightball hacking away with forks and knives while Max clutched his steak in his hands, ripping at it with his teeth. None said a word until their plates were empty. Now that's a meal, Eightball said, slinking back in his chair and firing up a smoke. Max gnawed on a thick piece of fat. Mama took a long swallow of gin, kicked up her slippers, and placed her enormous feet on the table, wiggling her doughy toes. Eight ball, rub my feet for me, honey. My bunion's been aching something fierce. Eight ball blew out a cloud of smoke as Brad wrinkled. Aw, oh, come on, Mama. I don't want to rub your feet. Have Max do it. He don't mind. He's just a boy. Ain't got the hand strength you do. Go on now. Eight ball snickered, shook his head and tapped his cigarette ash in the smear of blood on his plate. I ain't doing it. She put her feet back to the ground, sipped her drink and went still, eyes growing hard. You're just like him, she said. Lazy and no good. Ain't worth a dime. Eight ball sat up, crushed his cigarette out. The fuck? I bring you back food and get called no good? Not worth a dime? Fuck. But what about me, she said. What about me when I want to be touched, to be loved? You don't give a shit about me. And in a burst of sudden movement, she swung forward and swept her colossal arm across the table, sending all the dishes clattering to the floor. You're fucking crazy, Eight Ball said, standing up and grabbing his jean jacket. Go on, get out. Leave me. Don't worry, I'm going. I'm fucking out of here. He slammed the door behind him and Mama burst into tears, rising up and pounding across the trailer to her bedroom. Max slunk to the floor. He sniffed out a sliver of dropped fat to chew on, scraped a few burned bits of macaroni off the bottom of the pot, then licking his fingers he thought of Mary Ellen, then scampered out the door and into the night. 
Max crept through the redwoods on all fours, the tip of his sheathed knife dragging along beside him, engulfed in the dank scent of moldering pine needles and leaves. The night sky was clear and the moon nearly full, but the tall trees kept the land in shadows and only a few patches of pale light reached the forest floor. The twinkling lights of suburbia beckoned from behind the dark column of trees before him, and he scampered toward them. He parted a patch of the huckleberry and stared up at the home of Mary Ellen. The soft murmur of an owl cooing above him. The flamingo stood in the vegetable garden, wire feet planted firmly in the ground like a sentry. The windows were all alight, but the street dark and quiet. He waited there, watching for signs of life. Neighbors, joggers, people walking their dogs, nothing. When he was sure there was no one about, he darted across the street into the side of the house, crouching behind a shrub below a large bay window. The faint sound of canned laughter emanated from within. Slowly, he eased himself up and, gripping the window ledge, peeked inside. Mary Ellen's father, mother, and little brother, all lounging on a large sectional sofa, passing a bowl of popcorn around, bathed in the soft blue fog of the giant television screen. But Mary Ellen wasn't there. Max slipped back down and slunked around to the rear of the house, where he found a small window too high up to reach. Below it was a gardening hose wound up around a metal lip bolted to the wall. He put a foot on it and pushed himself up, the soft metal moaning beneath him and giving slightly as he peered inside. What he saw struck him like a bolt of lightning, and he nearly tumbled backward off his perch. Mary Ellen, rising from a bath of bubbles and stepping onto a mat of thick pink carpet, her body looked smooth, and he felt his insides go hot and sticky, like unsettled raspberry jello, the red powder coagulating but not yet formed. As she toweled herself dry, his palms went wet, and he reached down and caressed the handle of the knife, his sweat making it slick and slippery. Bats circled overhead, diving for the mosquitoes that hovered in the swarm over the dampness of the hose, fat with human blood. Running his tongue over his teeth, Max let his thumb wander in circles over the dome of the compass, vaguely aware that the dial was tilting and twirling beneath his touch, pondering faintly which direction the needle faced. Then her mother came into the room, lips speaking words Max couldn't hear, plucking a brown plastic bottle and a bag of cotton balls from a mirrored cabinet. He twisted off the cap, put a cotton ball over the top, and inverted the bottle. Kneeling beside Mary Ellen, she dabbed at the hollow where her left eye had been. Mary Ellen winced and pulled away, but her mother grabbed her by the chin, held her face steady, and began to scrub, mouth moving with indecipherable words. And then, like a rainbow suddenly appearing when the water hanging in the sky aligns just right, a sudden realization came streaming through his head. He had marked her. She was his. She would always be his. Always and forever. And he knew what he had to do. Max slunk down and slipped away from the house, scampering feral across the cool grass of lawn to the vegetable garden, then leaping over the little fence and landing before the pink flamingo. He found himself momentarily caught in its gaze, eyes locked with the black plastic orbs of the pink sentry bird. 
Growling, he thrust out his arms and wrapped his fingers around its serpentine neck, ripped it from the earth, and took it off across the garden and into the night, dragging the plastic bird behind him. Back home, Max sat on his dirty mattress with the flamingo resting upon his lap. He pulled his knife from its sheath and began to carve into it, penetrating the pink plastic, flaking away the color and exposing white underbelly. He dug a deep line across the side, then another and another. A word began to form itself in large, crude letters. When he was done, he took his thumb and wiped away the bits of plastic and read the word aloud. Mine. He slipped off his wolf hat, set it on the ground beside him, covered himself with his blanket, and took the flamingo into his arms. Curling himself around it, he let his eyes fall shut, and as a gentle sleep engulfed him, that word echoed through his head. Mine, mine, mine. So that was mine from the book uh, Under Rotting Sky by Matthew V. Brockmeyer, who is an author living in Humboldt County, California. He wrote a book uh, previous to that called Kind Nepenthe, uh, which is a uh, country noir about the drug culture of Northern California. And he uh, is also known as Humboldt Lycanthrope, which I think is kind of cool. Um, he won the 2018 Maxi Award for Best Suspense Thriller for Kind Nepenthe. And if Kind Nepenthe sounds familiar to you, it should. Uh, if you are a, a horror fan uh, and listening, uh, you know, reading, um, Edgar Allan Poe from the uh, the Raven poem, quaff oh quaff this kind nepenthe and forget this lost Lenore. Uh, that's that's where that's taken from. So anyhow, that's a little little tidbit about Matthew V. Brockmeyer and and his history. Um, he. I, I reached out to him on Facebook and, uh, because I, I, I'd seen, I, I've enjoyed his web presence. He's a, he's an interesting guy. And, uh, he was talking about, um, this being, you know, the story being more of a transgressive fiction than it is horror. Uh, but I mean, I, I still think that that applies. Uh, there are, you know, quite a few movies and books that have crossed, you know, or that, that straddle that line, I guess, uh, between transgressive fiction and horror. Um, I think transgressive fiction is kind of appropriate right now for the time we're living in, uh, because we're all feeling kind of trapped and, you know, we're going to see some weird behaviors coming out of people, I think, uh, you know, once this is all over and we can come back out of our houses and socialize and everything. Um, but if you don't know what transgressive fiction is, um, it's uh, a type of literature where you have uh, people that are feeling trapped by uh, social norms and do like strange things or uh, have weird quirks, like really, really weird quirks, even like illegal, um, you know, in, in order to break free of those, you know, perceived uh, shackles around them. So, you know, Fight Club was an example of that. Um, and so was uh, Choke, uh, both by Chuck Palahniuk, um, Train Spotting by Irvine Welsh, uh, American Psycho by Brett Easton Ellis, um, other people that kind of fit the bill with uh, transgressive fiction include Hunter S. Thompson, Charles Bukowski, Henry Miller, and uh, 
I think Stephen King too um, also fits into that category of people who've written about, um, you know, really, you know, the messed up behaviors, uh, you know, when they're confined. so anyhow, uh, that was uh, that was a little bit about Matthew B. Brockmeyer, the author of Mine. Uh, it's a short story from his anthology, Under Rotting Sky. He's going to be doing a sequel, or a sequel is coming out in September, to the story Mine, which I personally felt like the characters, I could envision them. I could um, see a short film made about uh, Mine and... Uh, Yeah, so hope everybody enjoyed it, and uh, not sure how much of this is going, you know, not all of this is going to get into the podcast. This is kind of a, I would think, a mini-sode, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. The maestra will will decide. The streets are deserted. Nobody's around. Salvation's unheard of. No cure to be found. I block out the words and give in to the sound. Cause it's so to be She's making me nervous. Don't let her get near. They'll have to observe us. We're The song you just heard was Super Spreader by Linnea's Garden. You can find more about them and their goddamn delightful music at linneasgarden.com. Now, before we get into Mary Mallon, let's first define typhoid fever. Typhoid fever is a bacterial infection spread by contaminated food and water. It can lead to high fever, diarrhea, and vomiting. It's more prevalent in places where hand washing is infrequent. In the early 20th century, typhoid fever was more common in the tenements of New York City's Lower East Side, where conditions were cramped and lacked indoor plumbing and ventilation. It certainly wasn't something that the city's affluent residents were used to. Mary Mallon emigrated from Ireland to the United States in 1883 or 1884, when she would have been about 15 years old. As was the case with young Irish women who came to the States, Mary worked as a domestic for wealthy families until hitting her stride as a cook. In 1906, Mary was hired by prominent banker Charles Henry Warren, who brought Mary along with the family to a summer home in Long Island's Oyster Bay in late August. Over the course of a week, six of the 11 people in the house fell ill with typhoid fever. Horrified and also concerned that the outbreak would prevent him from renting out the Oyster Bay house, the landlord hired sanitary engineer George Sober. 
thinking at first that clams were the culprit, Sober eventually ruled out nearly everything except for Mary Mallon. Going through Mary's employment history, Sober discovered that since 1900, seven families who'd had Mary on as a cook reported 22 cases of typhoid fever, one leading to the death of a young girl. Mary was, as it turned out, an asymptomatic carrier of typhoid fever. Soper doggedly pursued Mary all over Manhattan, trying to get her to surrender her fecal matter. As she proved unwilling to poop for the greater good, Sober eventually enlisted the New York Department of Health. After a five-hour standoff, Mary was forced to give samples. Surprise, surprise, she tested positive and was quarantined on North Border Island for two years, where 120 out of 163 samples of her shit tested positive. She was subjected to a barrage of treatments, none of which worked. She was released from quarantine in 1910, having agreed to find employment as anything other than a cook. Mary apparently crossed her fingers behind her back or some such because she pretty much immediately started working in the kitchens of the well-to-do once more, using assumed names such as Mary Brown and Marie Breshoff. When the hiring agencies responsible for placing cooks began to recognize her, she started finding work in hotels and hospitals. It's unknown just how many cases of typhoid fever in New York City were attributable to Mary, at least 84, but many more were suspected. In 1915, George Soper received a call from the Sloan Hospital for Women. 20 staff members had come down with typhoid fever, and guess who the cook was? The health department once again came knocking, and this time Mary didn't resist. Typhoid Mary Mallon would spend the rest of her life back on North Border Island, where she was, according to Sober, a privileged guest of the city. She had her own cottage, an unlimited supply of food to cook for herself, and was even allowed to visit the mainland for shopping and sightseeing excursions. Typhoid Mary Mallon died on November 11, 1938. I'm looking forward to the day where I can actually sit in a room and banter back and forth with Miss Lisa McColgan because because uh, it's no fun sitting here talking about talking by myself in a closet. Not fun, but we're doing what we can do to keep everyone uh, from going a little stir crazy. Stay connected. Stay scary. There's a monster in the house. There's a monster in the house. There's a monster in the house.